Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Please Look Up, the monthly podcast where we take you through a tour of the night sky from Western Australia. My name is Leon, and this is a bit of a different episode because we'll be talking about the most spectacular event from the April calendar this year, the 2023 Ningaloo Solar Eclipse. And for this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Robin Cook from the International Centre of Radio Astronomy Research. Dr. Robin, thanks for being here. All right, it's a pleasure to be here. Now, before we go any further, firstly, I sort of spat it out just then, the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research. That's quite a mouthful. What, what is that? Yeah, you nailed that, by the way. That's not an easy uh, mouthful to unpack. I still get myself twisted. <laughs> Thank you. I usually stick with ICRA. Yeah, ICRA is a nice way to put it. But of course, we're uh, an astrophysics group. So we're a group of astrophysicists located here in Perth. And uh, there were sort of 200 to 300 of us strong. Uh, we're really interested in studying things in the universe. So anything that's not on this planet, we are interested in. And of course, we do that in various different ways. But our, our kind of special uh, niche that we target is that we use radio telescopes. So we study the universe in different wavelengths of light to try to unpack uh, different aspects of the of the universe and the galaxies that are within it. Right, radio telescopes. So they're, they're the, like the massive ones, aren't they? The, That's right, like yeah. Straight out of the dish, I'm guessing. That's right. In fact, some of these are not even dishes. They're just little uh, pieces of metal that we put on the ground. But we put enough of them on the ground that they form a very large telescope in unison. And we use that as a, a very powerful uh, technique for radio astronomy. Right. We're here in Exmouth, Western Australia. It's a beautiful sunny day outside today. It's Thursday afternoon. The eclipse happened a couple of hours ago. Tell me, what was your experience? Where were you? Where did you see it? Yeah, so I was um, trying to get as close as I can to that totality line. Of course, there was a very small band of uh, totality shadow that passed over the Earth, and I was getting just a few extra seconds squeezed out. So I got up to 62 seconds, I think, going very close to that center line and dodged all the clouds for that reason. Fantastic. Can you explain in a bit more detail, what is this totality line exactly that you're talking about? Right, yeah. So, of course, the moon is uh, relatively quite small compared to the Earth. So, the shadow that it casts onto the Earth is is quite small. It only hits a, a very small region of, of the Earth as it passes along. Well, actually, what's happening is the, the Earth is rotating from underneath that shadow. And so, uh, as it rotates it, it crosses across the, the surface of the, of the Earth. And that depends on what kind of eclipse you've got. In this case, we had quite a small uh, uh, shadow that was tracking along the Earth. And then as I said, in this case, 60, uh, 40, seconds. yeah, 60 seconds and only a 40-kilometer uh, radius for which that was in. Right. So the moon is a little bit further away than most other eclipses at the moment, and the shadow is particularly small this time. Yeah, it, it has to do a lot with this this hybrid nature that's kind of, uh, for this particular eclipse, quite special. It's a, it's quite a rare type of solar eclipse, this, this, these hybrid solar eclipses. And it, yeah, I've heard this word hybrid bandied about. Can you, yeah, can you please explain what, what is hybrid? Yeah, well, it all, it all comes down to how we classify our, our solar eclipses. So you, you have a few different types that you can have. Uh, the first one is, of course, a total solar eclipse, which also gets mentioned when we talk about uh, the Exmouth uh, solar eclipse. And total just means that the, the, the moon itself is large enough that it completely covers the face of the sun. You completely block out the sun in total. And that's what I saw when I was standing right, outside here right. today. Then the second type you'll often see in all quite regular, quite common, are annular solar eclipses. So in this case, uh, the moon is slightly further away in its orbit. Of course, the moon isn't uh, orbiting in a perfect circle. It sometimes is closer, sometimes further away. It changes by about uh, 11% from its smallest to its largest. And and so uh, these annular eclipses happen when the moon is slightly further away. It's a little bit smaller and doesn't quite completely block out the sun. 
right? You get this ring around the uh, edge of the moon, and that's called an annular solar eclipse. And what's right. special about this particular solar eclipse is that it started off as an annular solar eclipse when it was going over the, uh, uh, I guess, the Indian Ocean. And as that hit Exmouth and Ningaloo Reef region, it was, uh, in fact, a total solar eclipse. And that's really great for us because that meant we got to see the complete totality of uh, blocking out the sun's light. But of course, what that meant is you're, you're really you're on the cusp of being just large enough, the moon, to just cover the, the, the face of the sun. And it's quite a rare thing to happen, actually. Right. And is that why the eclipse was so short? Because we just scraped into totality? Precisely. We're just on the cusp of being uh, halfway between an annular and a, and a total solar eclipse. And these, these types of eclipses are quite rare. In this century alone, there'll only be seven. And in fact, this one was the longest of all of those. So even 57 seconds or 62 at its maximum, uh, that is the longest hybrid eclipse of any particular one. Well, there we go. So my understanding, as you've just explained, the eclipse actually started down in the Indian Ocean. And if you were out there, you would have seen an annular eclipse. That's right. But as that shadow moved up, that, that path of totality moved up north, up here in Exmouth, it was we managed to get the total totality, and then off it went. Uh, and what happened as as that shadow kept kept moving north? Yeah, so it kept going up and through the Coral Sea, and uh, it, it made its way through East Timor, and, and eventually to West Papua. And there, over there, it became uh, no longer uh, a total solar eclipse. Uh, and it went back to being an annular eclipse. That's right. So it finished off being an annual eclipse in its in its final path. Fantastic. And so you were down. Uh, where were you exactly in uh, in this region? Was it the official viewing air? Yeah, official viewing. So there was a few thousand people there. I counted there. So a lot of uh, seasoned eclipse chasers, people that have seen double digits worth of eclipses. Um, and then some people that were like myself that were seeing it for the first time. And the, you yeah. could really tell the difference between them. Some people had some shirts that you could see from the early 2000s from eclipses past. And, and some of us were there for the first time witnessing the spectacle that was. Wow. And you said a few thousand people down there. I would say, uh, yeah, close to a few thousand people. And were there many young people or were they all sort of adults? All ages, I think. I mean, there's definitely the seasoned veterans that are you know they've been doing this for a long time so they skew old but there was kids there was uh young adults there were families there pretty much everyone who could get here i think uh was there to see fantastic now this is the first eclipse i've seen as well and i was gobsmacked i couldn't actually yeah. speak during it what was your experience during totality yeah I, it's it's strange i mean I, I i think i did a lot of research leading up to this and and i've been talking about this for the past few months and i thought i knew everything i was expecting to see i thought i knew all the effects that were going to happen uh you know the diamond ring effect all the changes to the environment i thought i was was going to know what to expect but really it's not anything like how I had expected, you know, the entire experience of it all, each thing on its own is itself kind of surprising. But when you put that all together in this very short amount of time, all these different aspects happening around you, I think that's the really crazy experience. And so I don't think photos really give it justice because it's all about what's happening around you. Yeah, I agree. It's that the, the collection is greater than uh -huh. the, the, it's greater than the sum of its parts. Absolutely. And how was the rest of the the vibe down at the viewing area? Yeah. Oh, I mean, it, it, as soon as those last few seconds occurred and the the final bits of sunlight peered through the edge of the moon, and you get these beautiful Bailey beads effects, I think you could really hear this buzz in the crowd and this sort of uh, boosting in people's exciting. And there was this just relief of of celebration once that those final bits of light came through. Fantastic. Let's focus in right on that moment of totality. Mm because you mentioned there the diamond ring and Bailey's beads can you explain what are what are those things yeah they are kind of two of the same effect really so firstly the Bailey's beads they they occur because the moon's surface is not flat it's got a lot of undulations in it craters and and pocket marks and so mountains etc so it's not a smooth surface so you don't expect the the light to uh, disappear all in one moment you have a few final 
little bits of light that pass through those craters and create these beads that uh, kind of emanate from the edge of the moon as it just finally passes over the sun. Oh, just that instant before it goes dark as That's it's right. moving right in front of the moon. We get like little dots around the side. That's right. And then the di- diamond rim ring effect is simply that there's the one last section of light that's passing behind the moon and of course it's amplified and it's at its brightest and it's a very small pinpoint of light and that looks like a diamond ring with a ring and a diamond at the top and in fact it was quite funny to see there was a, a wedding happening as as we were uh, at our viewing site so we wow. had people uh exchanging diamond rings under a diamond ring i think that was quite a sweet thing there can't get any better than no, that no it doesn't now as you can see the vibe here in Exmouth is fantastic there's a, a concert setting up down the road yeah here, that's right it's we can just hear in the background <laughs> everyone's very happy and during totality i understand we can see the corona peeking out from around the side of the moon what exactly is the corona yeah so the corona is sort of the outer atmosphere of the sun in some ways and it's sort of the remnants of all the plasma that's been ejected from uh, the sun's surface itself so it's very much this extended wispy feature it's very ghost-like in appearance and i was really surprised by how bright it was i mean i've seen photos of this and and i really believe that the the photos were these long exposures or these long uh, camera shots that that amplified these features but actually in fact I, you could see it with the naked eye very simply it was these long wispy tails extending from the sun many times larger than the sun itself which was really surprising yeah i agree i wasn't expecting them to be quite so pronounced yeah uh, yeah it was pretty spectacular fantastic as and- i was there also i someone kind of made the comment and I didn't really appreciate what they said when they said it they said what are those purple lights that I can see around the rim and and I, I was sort of focusing on other things trying to see what other planets I could see around but as I looked at some of the images later what I what I've noticed is there are these little purple tiny little purple tendrils that are extending from the the edge of the moon or the actually the sun itself mm-hmm. and these are actually solar flares that we could see these are solar flares being spewed oh, out of the sun itself flares. yeah it was really hard to see with the naked eye they did appear as these sort of uh purple um, bright dots but if you get these really beautiful pictures that a lot of people have taken you can definitely see these tendril like features that are uh, looping around in the the, close to the the surface of the sun there right i don't think i saw any of those at least not with my eye naked eye Uh, i guess i'll have to go and look at some of the official footage later today absolutely well worth it so how how often do eclipses occur like is there another eclipse in australia anytime soon Right, yeah, total solar eclipses, which is when the the moon completely covers the sun, themselves are very rare uh, things. They happen sort of on average once every 18 months, but it's sort of random where they're going to appear on the Earth. There's no particular place they should arrive. And, of course, majority of the Earth is covered in ocean, so often it's uh, happening somewhere over the ocean. In fact, the same would have been true for this particular eclipse if it wasn't for that Ningaloo Reef just jutting out the (laughs) west coast of uh, Western Australia. So that gave us that ability to, to actually witness this one from the continent, which was lovely. But, yeah, once every 18 months or so, um, but at the same time, uh, you know, we're a big continent here in Australia. So, you know, in some ways we get a little bit more fortunate in that we've got more opportunities for the, that random track from the moon shadow to cross the Earth. And in fact, the next solar eclipse to happen in Australia is 2028. That's in July. This is a really spectacular opportunity for for prospective eclipse chases because not only does it start up in the top end up in the Pilbara and cross through the Northern Territory extends down to New South Wales and the center line of totality crosses right through the city of Sydney right 
pretty spectacular. Nice yeah, and this is not just 57 seconds as this one was. This is up to four minutes, four and a half minutes in some cases. So really a spectacular uh, potential solar eclipse to go and view. So that's in July 2028? Very much so. Okay, so some of the really young people listening right now might be old enough to drive by then. Absolutely. It's a road trip to Sydney. It's a big drive across the Nullarbor, but it'd be well worth your time. And if not that, then also Queenstown in New Zealand is also a good destination for that. Oh, fantastic. Now, I was reading on the news as well that apparently there is a lunar eclipse on the 5th of May. Is that... What is a lunar eclipse, and has that got anything to do with this solar eclipse? Yeah, you actually bang on. They they actually come in pairs often. So uh, a, a lunar eclipse is when instead of the moon being between the Earth and the sun, it's the Earth that's between uh, the sun and the moon. So what's happening is the, the moon is passing in the shadow of the Earth, and so uh, instead of the, the moon being lit up as it normally would, it actually darkens halfway through. They can also be quite spectacular because what happens is the last bits of light to hit the moon are passing through the atmosphere of the earth and and you might be familiar with sunsets where the the sun starts to get more and more red and that's because that light is passing through thicker parts of the atmosphere and taking away a lot of the blue light a lot of the green light and you're left with only the oranges and reds and the same is happening here with a lunar eclipse where that light is crossing through the atmosphere and projecting onto the moon and it gives this really blood red hue so it's a quite a spectacular thing to see as well but nowhere near as spectacular these solar eclipses and and actually quite quite more common than, than a solar eclipse is. Oh, okay, because you can see a lunar eclipse from anywhere on Earth that can see the moon. That's right, that's right. right. So the uh, everywhere on the side of the Earth that's facing the moon will be able to see a, a lunar uh, eclipse, but a total solar eclipse will only be viewable by one very small region on the Earth. Ah, makes sense. Okay, and I've just done the maths in my head. Mm. So the solar eclipse today, and then two weeks later, on the 5th of May, the moon will have moved around to the other side of the Earth. And that's exactly why we right. The, and that's why they come in pairs, usually. Yeah, as you know, the, the moon has a 29 and a half day cycle or almost a month or a moon, yep. as it's the uh, origin of the name. So, yeah, uh, two weeks from now, that's halfway through a month. And so that's, of course, it'll be on the other side and happen to be in just in the right place to, to also occur a, uh, a lunar eclipse. Fantastic. So, Dr. Robin, we've been talking about the eclipse a fair bit, but I want to turn the uh, the lens back on you rather than the sun. Uh I understand you're a researcher at ICRA. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about what do you do? What is your research exactly? Right. I, I think I do uh, a lot of different things these days. In my PhD, I did a very specific topic. But now that I'm I'm uh, a postdoctorate, I, I, I try to study a broad range of things. But I guess the central focus for me is I study galaxies. So these huge structures, hundreds of billions of stars, much like our Milky Way galaxy, uh, and try to understand how they evolve over time. We kind of want to uh, try to understand our own Milky Way galaxy. But the way I think kind of think of it is if you're trying to understand the structure of Perth City, it's very difficult to do that from the busy streets inside of the city. What you really want is that overhead projection, that bird's eye view of the city. And so the way to understand our own city is by looking at other cities in the distance from a bird's eye point of view and so that's what I do I study tens of thousands of galaxies I try to understand their their shapes their structures and what are the physical processes that happened inside those galaxies that made them look the way they do today Wow, that's a really broad topic it is it only covers uh, 13 billion years of evolution so pretty 
pretty broad. <laughs> yeah, okay. And so the shapes and structures, do galaxies change shape and evolve over time? Yeah, we do think so. So if you look at the galaxy today, the universe today, you look at galaxies inside of that universe, you see different shapes. And the one people I think we're most familiar with are these spiral galaxies. And that's what our Milky Way is. It's a galaxy that's like sort of like a, a disk, a thin disk which has spiral arms inside of it and a very dense central core, a bulge as we say. And this is where the supermassive black hole is uh, located. So this is not the only way you can form a galaxy. We actually see these things called elliptical galaxies, so these sort of like mosh pits of stars as probably the results of galaxies colliding with one another and, and forming these very uh, unsymmetric and very unstructured systems, these mega structures of galaxies. And, and we think these are sort of the end point of galaxy evolution. But of course, we can't really trace a galaxy from its its start to its end. These things evolve on you know, billion year life cycles, certainly longer than the time a human uh, can start studying them. So we have to sort of create a, a timeline of the universe by looking at galaxies in the distant universe and compare them to those. Right. And do you notice any difference? Like if you look at galaxies that are 10 billion years old, 5 billion years old, and today, is there a is there a noticeable difference between them? Yeah, absolutely. There's so For one, we see way more of these elliptical galaxies today than we did in the early universe. And that's simply because over time, these galaxies start to collide with one another. And of course, things that are massive attract other things with mass. And so you have one galaxy attracts another galaxy, they collide, but then they're more massive. So they bring in more galaxies and et cetera, et cetera. And then you start having these mega structures, these galaxy groups and galaxy clusters. So now we have collections of thousands of individual galaxies each of those have hundreds of billions of stars and each of those uh, solar systems within their own right. right and they're all bound together by gravity that's right so gravity is is the dominant player in the in the universe right and so you mentioned that these big elliptical galaxies seem to be forming from other galaxies colliding is the milky way going to have a fate similar to that? Absolutely, yeah. So we, we know of our next closest massive galaxy similar to our own. It's the Andromeda Galaxy. And some of us here in the Southern Hemisphere have the, the lucky uh, location to be able to see this galaxy. But um, we're, on a, we're on a crash course for, for colliding with the Andromeda Galaxy. Right. Yeah. So I don't know what the name's going to be when we collide. Maybe Milkdromeda? Milkdromeda. Oh, that's or unimpressive. The, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> or the uh, Milky... What, milky Dromed, I don't know, milky there's, there's got to be a yeah, name in there. I, I, uh, let us know if you've got a better idea for That's a name. Right. Um, and so when galaxies collide, is it, is it like a gentle thing or is there like incredible amount of turbulence? Like what happens? Yeah, from afar, these things look incredibly chaotic. I mean, these galaxies get ripped apart, stretched and uh, distorted in all sorts of ways until they coalesce into one uh, single kind of structure. But all the while, the stars that are within these galaxies it's probably very unlikely that any one star would collide with another. And that's because there's so much space between these stars and the stars themselves are really small in comparison. It's very very unlikely that any two stars would collide. Right, I was just about to ask, like, are the stars and the planets inside these galaxies completely destroyed? But rather, the, the galaxies kind of just pass through each other, but gravity still pulls them apart and pulls them pulls That's them right. Together? I would say there's a lot of restructuring happening. Uh, and so solar systems, like our own solar system, would probably get quite significantly restructured. So our Earth may shift in its orbit. Maybe it gets closer or further from the sun or be completely knocked out of orbit, which is probably a bad thing for us here on Earth. But uh, 
This is in the next four billion years, so I don't think oh, we'll. Oh, so uh, not for a while. No, I don't think we have to worry about that too much. There okay. are bigger concerns here on the planet that we have to focus on. And uh, what about? I understand galaxies have large amounts of gas and dust and things like that. What happens to that during a collision? Yeah, so I mean, when we talk about galaxies, we really care about star formation. We care about how much gas. Uh, and by gas, I mean hydrogen, and this is really the raw fuel that forms new stars. So if a galaxy has lots of gas, it has the potential to keep living on and forming new stars and recycling, etc. But as soon as it loses that gas, it, it ends up what we call red and dead. And so uh, the stars start to evolve over time. They become red and they're not forming any new stars. So it sort of dies out, becomes dormant. But when you have a galaxy collision all of a sudden you get all this gas and you really increase the pressure and you collide all that gas together and really force a lot of star formation to happen. You you create a, a burst of stars all of a sudden, but you really burn up your gas quickly. So in some ways you create a lot of new stars, but you burn up all your fuel and, and, and without the potential for, to replenish it. Wow, so a galaxy collision at first, I was thinking that it would just destroy everything, but really it seems there seems to be a rapid formation process, but then once that settles down, you've run out of fuel and you've got nothing left. Exactly right, but even the details of those collisions are quite complicated. This is a really general way of thinking about it, but you can think if the two galaxies collide head-on, that might be very destructive, but if the two sort of slowly orbit around each other and slowly coalesce together, maybe that's not as violent of a process, so that doesn't really create as much of a damaging effect on the two galaxies overall. So there's all these different uh, factors that, that that go into whether a galaxy merger is going to affect its evolution. So this is where computer simulations come in handy because you can take two galaxies simulated inside of a computer and slam them into each other at all different kinds of ways and see what happens out of out of the other side. And this is a really crucial way that the sort of the last 20 years of astrophysics has gone is we take these observations of galaxies but then we compare it to what we can do inside of a computer and try to understand those. And of course now we can see them evolve over time even though we're sort of faking the galaxies. We, we think yeah. we are understand right. them well okay, enough so to calculate the consequences of what gravity might do and then compare that to what you see in your telescopes that's exactly right and where would you do these computer calculations like could you do it on my laptop or what uh if you had maybe ten thousand of your laptop all connected <laughs> into one uh then maybe you could do some of the calculations for a for a short time so no we use things called supercomputers and here in perth we well actually we're not here in perth at the moment but down in perth uh, we have something called the pausey supercomputer and this is one of the paramount supercomputers in the world and it's really uh it's well computers in general they're they're sort of dumb in the sense they do very simplistic calculations but they do them very quickly mm. and so if you think about gravity and the two attractive forces of of masses these are really kind of simple calculations but there's a lot of them to do hundreds of millions of times. hundreds of millions hundreds of billions perhaps trillions of these calculations uh, every millisecond so that's what these computers are, are capable of doing and that's why we we have to rely on these massive supercomputers to to do all our calculations Fantastic. and you can do that right here in perth in that's principle. right and uh when you when you talk about you're studying these tens of thousands of galaxies and trying to understand the the formation and evolution as the, of, across the lifespan of the universe, do you do this by yourself or what's what's the story? No, absolutely not. There's definitely a team of us uh, working on this, and and I guess the way to think about it is that we all kind of focus on a different facet of uh, of studying these galaxies. So I'm really the the morphology guy, the the structure guy, the guy that measures uh, the different shapes in galaxies. That's that's where I'm uh, really focused in on on that, and and I have other people in the team that do other aspects of the galaxy so uh, one really useful thing to know is the history of star formation in a galaxy so 
it's 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 great to know that a galaxy is star forming now but i want to know what it was doing a, a billion years ago five billion years ago and so there are people that that use all sorts of instruments things like the james webb space telescope the hubble space telescope uh different wavelengths of light to try to forensically unpack the history of each galaxy uh one by one of course that's a very difficult thing to do and so we need to do this on an automated basis Right, and so that's different members of the team would be doing that as well. That's right. Fantastic. And I will just finish with one more question. Based on exactly that, unpicking the history of galaxies, do we know, has the Milky Way undergone collisions with other galaxies before? We mentioned it's going to go undergo a collision in the future. Mm. We're actually currently going through not one but two. So we have uh, what's called satellite galaxies, and much like uh, our moon is a satellite of the Earth, we have two galaxies that are orbiting around our Milky Way galaxy. They're called the Large and Small Magellanic Clouds. So mm -hmm. Very easy to spot in the night sky, especially if you're out here in Exmouth, where you have beautiful night skies that are unaffected by light pollution. You can see these clouds of stars. So these are tiny galaxies, um, but they're being shredded. They're being uh, sort of cannibalized by our own, own Milky Way galaxy. And so right. over time, those, those galaxies will begin to trickle down into our own Milky Way and become a part of uh, our, our structure here. Wow, so galaxy evolution via collision is really a constant facet of living as a galaxy. That's right. It's a pretty uh, chaotic place out there, and it's always the bigger one wins. And in this case, we are bigger. <laughs> we are the bigger one. That's right. Wow, there we go. That's absolutely fascinating. Now, one thing I would like to ask you about, really get to the bottom of, more, of a, more on a personal level. So you spend your day-to-day your -day life, your career, is studying these unfathomably large, unfathomably old things that our human mind can only understand using numbers and, and data. But on a personal level, how do you deal with this on a day-to-day -day basis? You know, you're, each one of us is such a small individual. What are your thoughts on this topic? Yeah, you, you raise a really good point because, of course, the numbers we deal with are just too too large for any human brain to really comprehend. And, and in some ways, I feel I get a little bit numb to those numbers because they're so large. And I, and I deal with them on such a regular basis that they don't become so surprising to me anymore. You know, we're talking uh, masses with, with 30 zeros in kilograms afterwards. So yeah. really numbers that you can't even write down on a piece of paper even if you wanted to do it um so and the other thing is there's just no analogies you can draw um from these so you know often when we talk about other sciences there's at least something that's uh, on a human scale we can sort of give an analogy for but when it comes to things in space there's there's really no human scale and no human analogy that we can draw so it, it often becomes a very difficult uh a field of research to first understand but then also to try to comprehend and explain to others so it's it's as I said, there's no analogies that we can draw and it makes it quite difficult to appreciate in that way. Yeah, and do you ever feel personally overwhelmed? I know a lot of people are overwhelmed by the universe. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people think, um, you know, there's this colossal universe out there and we're this tiny pale blue dot, as it's often said. Mm. But I think the way to think about it and maybe to make people feel a bit better is that, you know, we are a product of the universe. Our, our planet was formed from the insides of an exploding star many billions of years ago. Uh, we now orbit a star that's kind of come out of that process and and our body was was also generated in that process all the carbon and all the iron in our body was was created inside of these uh, dying stars so i like to think that we're actually a piece of this universe we're not separate from it we're not you know uh, just existing within it we are the universe in some ways and i think that makes me feel a little bit better at night and that makes me easier to sleep wow that's a really beautiful way of thinking about it well, that's all we've got time for today, I'm afraid. Thank you for being here today in Exmouth, Western Australia with me, Dr. Robin Cook. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've learned so much and I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you so much for being here. No worries. I hope you enjoyed the beaches. Yeah, I'll uh, see you at the concert tonight. Of course. That's it for this episode of Please Look Up. We'll see you again next month where we talk about the May sky.
See you then.